Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. In this episode, we'll be rebroadcasting an audio-only version of the Race to Replace CMC++ Episode 2 podcast from Handmade Seattle 2021. Handmade Seattle is a conference about handmade software put on by Abner Coimbre, one of the original founders of Handmade Network. Learn more about Handmade Seattle and check out the other presentations from the conference by going to handmade-seattle.com. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, so let's get started. Hello, internet, and welcome to this Handmade Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Abner Coimbre. Very happy to have you uh, with us. And as you know, this conference is hopefully the top systems programming conference in Seattle. Specifically, this is the compiler podcast. So we had a very successful compiler podcast last year, and I would love to just get started by introducing our guests. So, you know, last year we had Andrew Kelly, and now he is back with us. He is the creator of the Zig programming language. Hello, Andrew. Are you with us? Hello. How's it going? Thanks for coming back. Really excited. We also have Ginger Bill, the creator of the Odin programming language. Hello, Ginger. Hello and welcome. It's been lovely speaking to you again. For sure. And then we do have a new guest coming in with us. His name is Mason. I don't want to botch your last name. Can you tell me your full name, Mason? No worries. Yeah, Mason Romali. Mason Romali. Uh, really happy to have you. So for those who don't know, uh, Mason is working on a game engine and on a game from his own studio. What is it called? So the uh, game is called Way of Rhea. Uh, that's R-H-E-A. And if people wanted to find info about that, what do they do? Where do they go? Yeah, so if you go to Steam and you search for Way of Rhea, uh, that's, you know, again, R-H-E-A, uh, we have a free demo up that you can download and check out. I also, like, didn't actually disable the level editor and all the dev engine stuff, so if you're clever and find <laughs> the shortcuts, you could totally play with that and, I mean, be my guest if you want to. Yeah, Steam is the easiest place to find it. If you're into puzzle games, uh, you, you might find it interesting. And another thing that I want to note here is that this is something that you're building in Rust. So at least for this podcast, even though Mason isn't technically part of the core contributors or the core team of Rust, I feel like he could be a reasonable representative of the Rust language in the community, at least. I would love him to introduce Rust to people. For the handmade community, not a lot of us know about Rust. We do know that it's kind of adjacent to Zig and Odin in its efforts to offer alternatives to C or offer alternatives to C++. But we don't know much about, you know, what the language offers beyond that. So sure, yeah, so I'll set the stage for where I'm coming from first. So, so you know, I use Rust every day. My game engine is written in Rust. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I am a board member on the Zig Software Foundation. It's not what I'm talking about today. Andy's talking about Zig stuff. I can't like officially speak for the Rust team or the Rust project, but I can tell you all the things that I love about Rust and why I'm using it <laughs> every day in my in my game engine. So I, I think a lot of people, when I first hear about Rust, they hear about it from a perspective of, of safety, right? Because Rust is doing, and if you haven't, I'll, I'll quickly run that by you. Yeah. Uh, Rust is doing this cool new thing where uh, it, you know, it's a low-level systems language where you, know, you have direct control over memory, but it is also at the same time memory safe. They have a very clever way of doing static checking on the way you pass references around that prevents you from doing things like double freeze. And, and, and this is super cool. I, I don't want to downplay that. But I think that a lot of conversation about Rust focuses too much on the safety. People mm -hmm. hear about Rust, and they think the only reason you'd use Rust is for the safety. If they're not interested in using a language solely for that reason, then they conclude that they're not interested in Rust. So safety is not actually why I started using Rust. I started using Rust because I was working on games and engines in C and C++. 
and a friend of mine we kept poking me to try out Rust, and I was very skeptical from my perspective at the time. If you're writing a game engine, you write it in C or C++, like that was just what you did. That was I was I was very skeptical that there was another way, and uh, I got like really frustrated with CMake one day and decided to just take some time off. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll humor my friend. I'll read the Rust book. I'm not committing to using it, but I'll read the book. Mm. And I read through it and was very impressed. It was the whole package. It had the, the safety stuff was awesome, but also it came with a package manager, came with a way to do unit testing. It has some types, so you don't have to you know use exceptions for error handling anymore, which I never liked doing. There's a list of features that Rust has that are all, all things that I like, and they all play really nice together. A big part of Rust is the fact that it's a low-level memory-safe language, but I would say a bigger part is that it's it's a new systems language that is trying to learn from mistakes of the past, and it has its own approach to that, it's its own flavor. And if you're interested in trying out a new systems language, I definitely recommend checking out the Rust book. If you think that set of features seems like something that would benefit your project, then great. And if not, then, you know, that's totally cool too. Yeah, I think that's a useful framing. Uh, you also mentioned that you sit on the board of the Zig Foundation, but you have this company, a game studio, you're building a game engine in Rust. So I find that to be an interesting story. How did you get Andrew and to, you know, have you join the Zig Foundation? How do you square that circle of enjoying two languages that way? Is that something people should be doing more, like trying out and advocating for multiple languages? Because, you know, Rust and Zig do have their differences, so we're going to get into that. Yeah, I think that would be great, actually, to have more people with foot in both worlds. I, 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 well, I'll answer the question, the story of how I ended up where I'm at. But, but I, first, I'll say, like, uh, I personally, I, I don't see this as like a competition, right? Like, mm. the, I don't want anyone to like win the language war. I, I would rather there be a future where we have a, a bunch of good systems languages that each have their different pros and cons, and people get to kind of pick and choose for what projects, what feels right to them, and then they can keep pushing each other to, to improve and, and stay relevant. I, I don't want to end up where we, where we have been in the past, where it's like, basically, it's just C++. Okay. Actually, that's interesting because, you know, we did have this agreement of my podcast title, which is going to be great because like, <laughs> we're calling it the race to replace C and C++. And basically members of the audience last year and perhaps even yourselves don't find it productive to frame ourselves as being in a competition to dethrone C or to dethrone C++. However, we can't deny our relationship with C is ever present and ever complicated. We can't pretend we don't speak of C using a critical voice in hopes of offering something better. And our heads are not buried in the sand. You know, we're not ostriches. We see the discussions on Hacker News, Lobsters, Reddit, Twitter, etc. People talk about Zig and Odin and Rust in terms of how they fare against C or C++. There must be some pressure, some desire to replace these old languages. And it might, sometimes it maybe does feel like a race. Don't you want to become the lingua franca for the software industry? I think that Loris, Loris Crow, VP of Community on the Zig Software Foundation, said it really well with his blog post, maintain it with Zig. And he he really articulated my position on this really well. So I would encourage you to just type that into a search engine and read it. But to summarize it, I think it's worth acknowledging that there's just a huge body of C and C++ code out there that's not going to be rewritten. And so we want to take advantage of it rather than doing redundant labor. Zig's approach is, yes, absolutely. We want this language to be strictly better than C. Not strictly better than C++. Mm. However, we also want to provide a way to incrementally introduce Zig into any given project. So you don't have to pay this, this black and white cost of rewriting everything. 
you can actually just introduce Zig into the build system and immediately unlock benefits and then slowly introduce more Zig to your project over time. Yeah, um, I've always find the term that a replacement to C doesn't really make any sense because you're not mm-hmm. going to, again, as, as Andy says already, you're not going to chain or re- replace the uses that C already exists in. C is also covers so many areas. It's not even technically one language. And I don't just mean the preprocessor. I mean that it is completely different on different platforms. Like the C your programming on your, like I say, a desktop machine isn't going to be the same that's going to be on a microcontroller. It's not going to be the same as on a some other private um, hardware. So C is kind of a very, it's got many different thing, aspects to it. Yes, there's some overlap and some there, but it, it's, it's a very generalized thing that works on many different things. And again, for Odin, one of the things I was designing it for, it was I was trying to build for high performance modern systems and, and has many de- built in like data oriented data types into language. So I'm trying to make an alternative to C in that particular systems programming niche. I'm not trying to re- say, okay, Odin is going to be on everything. Because that's just an untenable goal that doesn't really make any sense, and it's it's ill-defined as well. Ooh, well, there's and a if, disagreement. <laughs> no, no, no. I know there's there is a disagreement again. I know Zig is where there is you are trying to in events, and you even say on the website Zig, you are trying to be a C replacement in most areas possibly. I've made many different. Again, we have philosophical disagreements. If we did have the same, we'd be using the same language. Yeah, I I think that explicitly saying the goal of uh, this language is designed for modern how did you phrase it? Modern architectures? Uh, modern, uh, high performance and modern systems is what I've said. Yeah, high, per- high performance modern systems. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that's an excellent way to put it, right? And and when you can narrow in on, on a smaller scope, you can really excel at that scope. So I think that's an interesting point to contrast with zig where our tagline is a general purpose programming language We're, we are we are trying to do exactly the thing that you're saying is a bad idea to do and yes. and i don't mean that in a in a, in a hostile argumentative way I, i'm just putting it out there like that's our fundamental difference between the the zig and the odin approach i, I would i would caveat here the thing is odin is very is general purpose as well you can do it on many systems but when I say I'm modern systems, I'm saying like a 32-bit and 64-bit platforms. I really don't give a damn about 8-bit or 16-bit anymore. I don't really care about 16-bit like high and near pointers of the segmented memory spaces. I'm also thinking about, okay, memory, multiple machines nowadays, they've got multiple cores, multiple threads, different cache lines. There's different ways that these machines work. So I'm trying to think, okay, I need to have a certain set of assumptions to design from. I can't just say, I don't know what hard this is where it's going to be running on. I know what type of hardware works at the moment, and I know what the most popular is for most platforms, be it desktop, be it servers, be it consoles, be it your phone. Odin is designed for those, and it will work on them. That's what, Even my phone, I would class as high performance. Even my watch, which now has ARM chips in it, would be classed as kind of high performance. This is where, like, for instance, Odin is being used right now. For my day job, I work at on JangraFX's Embergen. Embergen is a real-time volumetric fluid simulation for games and film, and we are using odin throughout there and we are doing yeah, it i see your stuff on twitter all the time i didn't realize you're yeah. connected to that project yes as a I am in games that project yeah. is super cool <laughs> yeah thank you yeah so it's re- again it's all written in odin we've got about eight programmers now um, writing in odin as well and again we are designing for as high performance as we possibly can and odin has helped us in that way but odin isn't it's not just because odin it's just again it's different philosophies behind it so this is where again different languages like rust or zig or Odin, or many other newer languages coming out may benefit different teams and different people. I'm sorry, I'm kind of curious about Rust here, Mason. What kind of industries is Rust permeating in? Like, I, I've heard stories about Rust becoming more more and more part of the Linux kernel. So, like, where do you... Oh, I can't speak with a lot of confidence about exactly what's happening now. 
but I, I can kind of make predictions maybe. I do think the safety thing is big and, and you're going to see people using a lot of, probably already seeing people using Rust for, for stuff where security is critical. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing people do more games in Rust. Uh, mm. I was at PAX West showing off my game and I ran into multiple uh, other Rust users who, one of which had a game at PAX and others who didn't have the game with them but were working on it and checking out PAX to see if they wanted to show in the future. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I should have more there, but I'd have to give it some thought. For sure. So I would love to know, and we can start with Zig, what do you look for in a core contributor? Imagine there's just a whole set of skill sets that I always feel overwhelmed at when I'm thinking about what, it, what does it take to build a language? I could think about reverse engineering as one of those skills. You know, you look at some assembly output and there's a series, I don't know, of load effective address instructions. And the operands are RDI, RSI, and RDX because this is x64, right? And then the end result of that procedure you're seeing in assembly is stored in register RAX. And so maybe the contributor has a special skill where they can work their way backward and write the C procedure that will likely generate that assembly in the first place. So maybe it turns out to just be a simple arithmetic expression. Maybe you saw the C code and it's like, oh, okay, 3X plus 5Y plus 8Z. You know, that was the result you saw in the assembly. That's the, fun the C function. So there's a lot of background knowledge to be able to reach that conclusion, right? The registers RDI, RSI, RDX, those are commonly where C functions arguments are stored. That's what the backend does for you. RAX is where the return value for a C function is usually placed. But then like how does load effective address exist as a result of a trivial C math expression, right? Isn't that instruction just used to compute memory locations? So, and I won't describe all these skills in detail, but you know, there's also debugging linker errors. There's knowing how to interface with LLVM well. There's, there's the actual LLVM C++ API, right? But there's also the IR code format, and maybe you need to know about that and so on. Maybe parsing for ZIG is a solved problem. Semantic analysis is a solved problem, or maybe not. Like how often are you stuck inside that morass of ASTs, right, of abstract syntax trees? And there's just a whole bunch of skills that I just don't know what you would expect for a contributor. I, I would actually take this in a bit of a meta direction because, I mean, what, what you just listed were a bunch of very specialized skills or very specialized te technical problems. And even a very talented person who's done many compilers before is not going to be able to nail the design on all of those things at once. And you can kind of get fresh with one of these concepts and, and unfresh with them, you know, and you can come back, you can kind of come in and out of them. And any programming, but especially compilers, is iterative, where you can you can do a implementation or a design that is baseline, and then you can improve it and improve it. I'm not actually looking for someone who has certain skills. It's actually, I'm looking for someone who can keep the big picture in mind, who can interact with contributors in a productive way. Because if you can't, if you can't help extract the shared knowledge between multiple people, there will be dark spiderweb corners of the design that are flawed because no one person can hold it all in their head at once. So I'm actually looking more for teamwork, communication, community management, you know, someone who's going to rally people rather than piss people off. That's my primary concern. And the technical stuff, you know, everyone can improve, everyone can learn, and that's the fun stuff. So people will do that automatically. But the communication skills, I find, tend to be more hit or miss. Someone's got it or they don't. 
That's interesting. So even if there's that one big technical gap, you'd be okay with moving forward with that person. Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean I'll I'll even shout out an example here. Um, actually, I won't put them on the spot, but we had a person come in who's a student, pretty young, I think, started. Just very excited about compiler concepts, but asked a lot of questions, need a lot of help for very basic concepts. And their their pull request needed a lot of attention, a lot of hand holding. But they learned, they kept at it, and I don't know, six, seven months later now, they're doing really quality work. Um, wow. Uh, you know, lot le- lo- a lot less help needed, uh, like actually just productive and 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 helpful it's just the the attitude of of being willing to learn not getting you know annoyed at people being willing to collaborate you know just try trying and and learning like that's that's the thing that makes it work it's not it's not any technical skills because the technical skills are just so ephemeral you can even lose them you know what i mean yeah that makes sense yeah I think uh, there's a tendency for compilers to feel like magic if you've never written one. And uh, and that might seem disconnected from this, but but I think it's related in that uh, it, it feels like you, you might need a certain special skill set to be able to write a compiler or do good work on one. And I felt that way for a long time too. With my game, I wrote a compiler in Rust for a scripting language for my game. And that's the first serious compiler that I've written Prior to writing it, I didn't think that that was the kind of work I could do. But it, it turns out that uh, you know a lot of compilers have been written before, and it's a lot less about like knowing specific facts about the computer up front, and a lot more about being willing to sit down and put in the work to make it happen, and about making good decisions about like big picture stuff. You know, for example, I had never really written any assembly and this is this is a project that i've been considering embarking on which is taking the compiler i wrote in rust and moving it from outputting a custom bytecode to outputting x64 directly uh, this isn't something i've done yet it's something i was thinking about doing and i've never written any assembly before andy was also uh interested in well actually i can't remember exactly what he was doing at the time but we both were interested in figuring out how to uh output or actually out how to put machine code directly not even assembly and we both, although we had different motivations for this, we both sat down and spent a day, I think, at Recurse Center, writing a little calculator that took in math equations and outputted X64 to calculate the results. And, and you know, that, so me never having written assembly, never having really looked at the bit-by-bit representation of an X64 instruction, by the end of the day, we were able to get something basic working. The technical parts of it, you you just have to stare at them and you eventually figure them out. The hard the hard stuff is how do you connect all these interlocking pieces to make a good language? That's the hard problem. Different parts of the compilers in general have different just skill levels. And I don't mean technical skills. I just mean how much experience in general stuff. Like, for instance, sometimes the, the easiest part of the compiler, just of any compiler, would probably be the tokenizer. Probably one of the easiest bits. But there's Again, it all scales. You got to- again, if you go in order of compilers, how most standard compilers are built, you've got tokenizer, parser, semantic checker, object generation, and then linking. That's usually the stages. But there's also like optimizations. Now, optimize optimizers are very complicated things, like especially with how modern ones are built. So that is not something I would expect the average person to even jump in and do, especially since it requires like especially with the new one like modern things like SSA. Um, you need to know a hell of a lot of graph theory. And that is something, again, something that's very difficult. But again, something like learning how to tokenizing or parsing, again, that's something people can learn very quickly, even like in less than a week. Yeah, this is interesting because a lot of the stuff has been done before. You know, like you're trying to write your first parser, 
you don't have to start from first principles. You just Google like how to write, you know, pick your favorite search engine, search how to write a parser, and then you find a Wikipedia article on recursive descent, and then you just do what it says, and you have a parser or tokenizer, you know, even even more uh, straightforward. And, and you know, it'll be challenging the first time you do it, but you'll be able to do it. And that's true oh, yeah, of sure. most of the stages of compilation. Though I would agree, optimization is probably a tougher one. Yeah, and I find that a lot of people, when they are making compilers, I've seen many beginners do this before. The thing that they struggle on the most is not code generation, not parsing, but it's actually semantic checking. So, which is, it is probably the most complicated bit in there. Because, again, if you've got a very basic language, like you're making a little lisp, semantic checking is not that difficult because you're evaluating as you go along, usually. But once you come to more C-like language, it gets a little bit more complicated because it, it's, not, it's not usually local anymore. Whilst parsing, um, it's just top to bottom, usually. And you maybe need to see, set like symbol table if you're in like a C light language or no symbol table if it's more close to like Odin or Zig or something like that. But it gets, it's, it's a more complicated thing I found. Like as soon as you've got the typed AST done in the standard way of doing compile writing, lowering that down to like a machine code or assembly or other language, most people can understand that because they've already in cap, like already like understood that, oh, this is a tree representing the semantics of a language, I can now just lower this back down to what I think it needs to be. And most, and again, I find that that is where the stage is. It's the middle bit. So if anyone, if you're contributing to want to do stuff, if you are not that well-versed yet, again, I recommend the other sites rather than semantic stage. But if you know a bit and you've already written numerous compilers before, even just toy ones, literally little toy ones, you can always go learn in semantic and learn how that compiler, um, learn how it's structured because that the semantic stage is also quite different to different languages because that yeah. is dependent on the semantics of language. Like for instance, how Odin's um, semantic checker is structured is very different to the way Ziggs is. And that's due to the semantics of the language. Yeah. Our parsers are probably very, not that difficult. It's like, no, recursive descent is-, is Are they very similar? Mm. Yeah. Um, but the actual semantic checker is very different. And I remember discussing with Andy that I was, I've multi-threaded the entire front end of Odin, this, including the semantic checker. And that's because of how I designed the language of Odin. Like the semantics itself allowed me to multi-thread it in a specific way. But you wouldn't be able to do that with Zig's semantics. You would have to use a different approach if you were trying to multi-thread um, Zig's semantic checker because of how Zig is designed. And that's the interesting part when you're trying to find it is that you need to know kind of the semantics of a language to understand how to check it. Yeah, that's quite curious. So it, it sounds like that's where you spend. I, I was also, I was always wondering, like, what is the time that Andrew spends on, or, or, or Ginger? What is their most focus on the compiler? And it sounds like it's a semantic checker. That's just like where the magic starts to happen, and you need to be very careful because they can be different across languages, quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's accurate. By the way, I had, I think I have one more answer to your question. I would say that being able to read other code bases and learn at a high level, what are they doing? What strategies are they taking? What lessons can I learn to import into my own code base is a hugely useful skill because there's nothing new under the sun. Every language idea that Zig has, Odin has, and Rust has, were done by a different project or a research project or some other project some other time. Sometimes it's more efficient to just first principles your way to the answer so that you don't have to go trudge through a bunch of white papers. But sometimes... The LLVM code base just has a really good example of a certain optimization. And if you want to learn how to do it, you just need to read their code. 
Um, so reading, being able to read a foreign code base, I would say, is a, is a really valuable skill. Yeah, this is uh, an extremely good skill as well, especially since if you've ever programmed for a long time, you'll realize that reading documentation alone isn't usually helpful. Sometimes you have to read the source code directly, and that is a skill in itself. That is something that it takes a while to do, and it does take years to master, obviously, and you still you may not master it. Um, so don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, but it's, it is it is something that, like, okay, I've, re I've read stuff in the Rust compiler and such to figure out, like, okay, how do you do some stuff like what, with LLVM? Like, for instance, Rust is a very good example because it's very heavily tied with LLVM. And finding out what's the tricks to get this to work because LLVM is one of is notoriously known to not have much documentation for <laughs> what you actually want. And sometimes you, if you read how another language has used it, that's great. Sometimes you have to just dig into LLVM directly and look at the source code and go, oh, so that's how you're meant to use it. Uh, because, and then does it, and you can be spending hours just finding how a little thing works. But that is actually, especially if you want to, if someone wants to join and do like the back end stuff with LLVM, that is, is a big warning to you. You're probably pulling out your hair if you've not lost it already. <laughs> um, yeah, this was especially true for Zig for our Translate C feature, which uh, currently uses Clang, libclang, to provide a type-checked abstract syntax tree that we then convert into Zig for importing C code. It took a lot of reading the Clang code base to understand how that is supposed to work. But you know what? By doing that, I learned some tricks that they did to store their AST in a more memory efficient way, which I eventually uh, imported into into Zig and kind of did some similar tricks. So it's really ended up being beneficial to find out how they did something. I've the way I learned to write compilers was reading other compilers. Yeah, like, I uh, I think this is actually some of the best advice Andy has given me. I, I run like technical ideas by in a lot. He has I, I can remember a few times early on in working on my engine. When I'd run something by him and he'd say, well, you know, I haven't done that before, but I bet you SDL knows how to do it. it you know, it may not be a compiler thing, but, you know, it's a windowing graphics thing. Uh, but like, you know, I, I would have this hesitation. Reading the SDL source is going to be like a kind of big investment. Like I'm going to have to figure out how they structure stuff. It's going to take a while. But, you know, the answer is there. Yeah, I think it's also very motivating to hear uh, you guys talk about it in these terms of it's okay to not be technically super competent to start these projects or to contribute to your projects. But let's simmer on the technical stuff for a little while longer because you know, at some point Mason mentioned uh, exceptions. And I think this is a great topical news item where Walter Bright, the creator of the deep programming language, very famously and recently said on Hacker News that he concluded that exceptions are a giant mistake, which is a big deal from the creator of the D language, right? And so I'm not too well-versed on exceptions. My first job was very lucky at Kennedy Space Center, and it was often critical for us at the agency to have predictable and tiny runtime footprints in terms of the code gen. So it needs to be trivial for us to reason about the absolute minimum set of computations that'll bring you to the next stage, right, to launch a rocket or something. So for us, exceptions was not an option. Like, it's not something we want to have in order to meet those goals. It's just too non-local, too hard to reason about, too costly, even depending on the language. Let's segue into exceptions and error handling in general. Like, I realize we can't get the complete picture, but I want to know whether errors and regular values, so just imagine return values, right? Whether errors and regular values are like separate channels in your language. 
I don't know, there's also hullabaloo around the er defer feature, which I don't know much about. I'd love to hear about that. Versus multiple return values, like would you, which ones would you prefer over the other? Like, obviously, does your language support exceptions in the first place? Why or why not? So who wants to jump in? I'll just jump in. Why not? Let's get in there. Because I know the topic you were talking about was from on Hacker News, and now Walter Bright talked about it. And what Walter Bright was actually talking about was mainly the implementation of exceptions themselves not necessarily that their usage my my criticisms of exceptions is very rarely the implementation and it's usually the usage of them because for me i, I take very peripatetic school i'm very Aristotelian here i think the usage will restrict and determine the actual possible implementations anyway so if how it uses is used is more important than the actual implementation now the implementations are very bad i agree because especially how most um, exceptions are implemented but how it's used is usually my main criticism and the main criticism but my my criticism of exceptions as on usage is more of you throw an error just handle it okay and just let someone else handle it up the stack and the other cop issue is that usually when people do error error value handling it it usually is of a value de- de- degenerate state going on in there so what I mean by a degenerate state, and this is one of the most important issues, is where all values can degenerate to a single type. For many people, when they do this, they have an error value or not, and then they pass it up the stack, and they're writing their code as if it's purely in a happy path, and then handling an error value. Now, um, this usually becomes, and then because it degenerates, you effectively now got a fancy Boolean. You just got an error. Was there an error value or not? And you and this is how exceptions are really like this. And you see so many people do like this and just go, oh, was there an exception? Okay. Or was it derived from the base exception class or whatever language it's using? And just treat it like that. Oh, sorry. Are you saying sorry. that because oh, sorry, people yeah. don't have the, let's say, discipline, and I can sort of even speak to this myself, if they don't have the discipline to give granularity or to know when to stop at a certain part of the stack to handle an error, they just don't have the discipline to do it. They just decide to let it bubble up all the way to the top with the, where you lose all the context and it's just a generic error handling case. At the end of the day, that also harms the user of your program or the compiler because they're just going to be seeing generic errors. They don't know what happened anymore. Is that what you're trying to convey? It's about two things, actually. So one, it's a general culture of passing it up the stack. Right. But, and also because, and also again, you remember, humans are lazy. We are human, uh, lazy creatures. <laughs> and we'll just do what the easiest path is most of the time. And if the language naturally tends to one way like that, especially with exceptions in a language like C++ or many other languages, you will just tend to do those lazier approaches. But I think the second point, which is the most most important to me, is it's, it's a way of thinking about programming. I don't really think in the concept of error values necessarily. Sometimes I do, but usually I don't. To me, it's just a different code path. Like, okay, this thing happened, we're going down this code path. I, instead of having the happy path, and then if anything goes wrong on that path, there are little uh, detours or anything. To me, it's more like, okay, there's multiple paths. A good example I would do this is an analogy when I used to drive to work. I used to drive to work quite a distance, about 40 miles. And the main route, I would call, was pretty much a big road to go straight down there. you change lanes, but it would just be one big road. But every so often, you'd, you'd have to divert away from this road. And you'd have to go down all the little nook paths and all this way. But it turned out they weren't actually that uncommon. About, I'd say, two times a week, I'd actually have to not go down the main road. I'd have to go down the nook path. So it's actually, it was a very common thing. So the happy path was not that commonly happy. It was like I had to know the other routes and I knew how to handle them. 
So it, in that sense, it is just dealing with the problem at hand. And your problem may be, oh, I need to handle this particular state. It may not be a failure state. It just may not be a success state. So it's a very more fuzzy logic rather than a binary logic. So my uh, dear community, I don't think Odin supports exceptions, just so you know. No, Odin um, it has no exceptions of uh, error exception value like that. Unless you want to do uh, implement it with like long jump and set jump, you can do that till the cows go home. But that's up to you. Is that a British saying the, about the cows? Yes. <laughs> Very nice. So, you know, there's a name for that pattern where you just catch, you just have one handler at the very top, right? It's Pokemon programming. Got to catch them all. Is, is, that, is that the totality of your contribution? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 if I, it is, I, we're perfect. done. Podcast over. Good to go, man. <laughs> Can't top that. No, I, had a, I had an actual thing to say. No, I, th I think that, um, that Ginger Bill's point about exceptions or, or, or error, proper error handling is really just about control flow. And I had, I had this realization that I wanted to try to articulate because I realized that what I had arrived on with Zig and the way that errors are handled, which I, maybe I should back up and explain how it works. But mm -hmm. I, I realized that the, what we've done in Zig is it's really just a way to encode a concept of a forwards and a backwards at the same time so let me explain that because it's a little weird yeah. but in zig the error handling tools that we have are a type which is an error there's a language recognized error type and then we have a defer statement and an error defer statement so for quick refresher uh, defer will run an expression at the end of the current scope no matter what so even if you return early, the expression will still get evaluated. Error defer will do that only if you are returning from the scope with an error. In practice, what this means is that your code is flat, that it's not indented, and yet it is hard to mess up properly cleaning up temporary resources. So that could be memory, that could be file handles, that could be the fact that you inserted something into a hash map that should, that should get undone if you if the function fails, th things like this. And so what, what ends up happening is that if you point to any line of code in Zig, we can understand what happens if we go forwards. That's the normal way that things progress, right? You go to an if statement, a loop, whatever. But there's also a backwards. What happens if we have to return an error from right here? And the answer mm -hmm. is you, you go back up and all the defers that you pass will run and all the error defers that you pass will run. And then so on from you know the, up the whole call stack until someone wants to look at the errors and and do something intelligent about it. And so when I started thinking about it this way, uh, I was actually able to make some improvements to the way that my code was structured, in in the Zig compiler specifically, mm -hmm. because essentially what you end up doing is you write every single function in an atomic way, where you know you trust that it's. The easiest way to write code is atomically, where a function either succeeds or fails. And if it fails, no state is changed. So you end up being able to trust the fact that if you handle an error, it's as if that function did not execute. Because you were able to encode the concept of backwards into your logic. And this is only possible because it sounds like errors in your compiler are almost like a first class thing you're distinguishing the channel of errors versus the channel of like here's some just some values uh this feeds really nicely into into my thoughts on exceptions yeah 
the way I like to kind of think about error handling is start with something really basic. Like, let, let's just take the way we do error handling and see, think about what the problems with that are and how we can improve them and look at how we end up with the different popular ways of handling errors. So popular ways that I'm aware of are the way C does it, doing it with exceptions, or improvements on the way that C does it. So, you know, returning some types, stuff like that. So if we look at, you know, what C does, right? I mean, you can do whatever you want in C, right? There's not one way to do errors, but if you look at how most people handle errors in C, you're returning a return code, and then you're supposed to check the return code to see if there was an error. Uh, ultimately, this works. There are problems with it, and the problems are that it gets unwieldy. It's, it's not exactly like a conceptual problem, it's just a problem like in practice. When you go to write code this way, you end up with like a million nested if statements, checking if this function failed or not, if this function failed or not. And then when it comes to clean up at the end of the function, it's a mess. You end up having to either use go to or just having uh, a just a mess of ifs. No, that's relatable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so so it's kind of frustrating because this thing that felt like it should actually work pretty well ends up not working super well in practice. But these aren't like necessarily inherent problems. Right? It's just the way things happen to pan out with C, right? We could design a language that, that doesn't have those problems. Furthermore, though, going the C route, uh, it's very easy to forget to check for errors, not with exceptions, with errors. It's, it's very easy to forget to check if a function succeeded or not. In fact, it's easier to forget than it is to do it correctly. Uh, and that's not really great, right? Like anytime it's easier to do the wrong thing, the wrong thing's gonna get done a lot of the time. Uh, you would much rather the, the correct thing be the easier thing to do, right? So, so those are some problems with error handling in C. If we jump over all the way to exceptions, exceptions, you know, you can't forget to check in the same way you can forget with C. I mean, you can forget to have a catch somewhere, but the error, something will happen. Like you can't silently have an exception get thrown. If an exception gets thrown and you don't handle it, it's going to crash. So that that, seem, that alone seems like a positive. It, it, it seems like we've also got rid of a lot of the unwieldiness, right? We don't need these huge nested if statements, etc. And so I can definitely see why a lot of people would see exceptions as strictly superior. Uh, as you probably guessed, I, I don't see them that way. I, I would agree that exceptions are a mistake. I, I think once you drill down to what actually happens when using them in real software, you can start to see how they have created a lot of new problems and haven't really solved the uh, the original problems they're trying to solve with error handling done maybe the C way. The first thing is that uh, it, it's, it's actually very difficult to write correct code if you fully utilize exceptions. If you're only throwing exceptions and never catching them, that's fine, but then you're only using half of what exceptions have to offer. If you're going to be throwing and catching exceptions, I will make the potentially controversial argument that that you, there's there's no way that your program's correct, uh, or there's no way that you're sure that it's correct. <laughs> and so, so I'll break that down. I think a lot of people would probably disagree with that, but like, hear me out. If your language can throw exceptions, well, let's talk about C++. On a given line, how do you know whether or not that line can throw an exception? Because any point that can throw an exception is a place that you could exit your function early. So if your line just you know reads from a value or writes to a value, you're probably safe. I mean, unless there's a copy constructor. Okay, so maybe you're not, <laughs> right? Like, like it's not even just calling functions, right? Like even just saying x equals y, you actually have to know what type x is and like know that there's not some crazy copy constructor that's gonna go throw an exception. Like, or like a macro. No, yeah, or a macro, oh, right? Yeah. So, so almost no line of your code is safe. Now you might think, well, I'm not going to do something like throw an exception from exception from a copy constructor or obscure stuff with a macro. You know, you're being disingenuous and you're making this argument as if someone was being hostile. It, are, are you sure though? Right? How do you know that your copy constructor isn't throwing an exception? Does your copy constructor call anyone else's code? Well, you better be sure that their code doesn't throw an exception. How do you know that their code doesn't throw an exception? 
Also, yeah, if it did. allocates memory, it could throw bad alloc. Yeah, and, and, but uh, to, to, to be fair to the other side of the argument, most people aren't catching bad alloc. And so your program can crash in that case. Well, I haven't fully connected the argument yet, but, but oh, it's, very it's very important to me whether you catch it or not. Uh, but you are correct, right? Like if, if it allocates, it could just throw bad alloc. If you call anyone else's code, how do, you, how do you know whether or not their code throws an exception? You could look at the documentation, but it is not normal to document all the exceptions you throw. Like you may document some exceptions that it throws, but it's not like standard to document all the exceptions you throw. That's a good so, point, yeah. So you, you could say there's two options here. Either one, you read all of their code and transitively read all of the code that their code calls. And every time you ever update any of your libraries, you read all of the new code and all of the updated code that the updated code calls and et cetera. Okay, there's no way you're going to do that. So you could say, okay, let's not do that. Let's just always document what exceptions we throw. Okay, great, but you still have the same problem. The second you call into someone else's code, you have to document for them which exceptions they throw. You have to keep up to date. You have to keep your code up to date. And this is very, very difficult because there is no way to know when you're wrong. So maybe there's some other language that like the type system checks which exceptions you're throwing where you can do this. But if you're working in C++, this is not solvable. You're not going to know which lines of your code can throw exceptions. You might be able in some cases to stare very hard at a few and conclude that they can't. But in general, you, you kind of just have to assume anything could throw an exception. If uh, I remember correctly, I think Swift actually has, you have to annotate if a, if a function throws or not with the throw annotation. So some languages do actually explicit about if it throws. It may not say what it throws, it just it throws. Yeah. So it's um, very fine. But this is, okay, this may sound like a weird criticism, and I'm going to kind of focus on Zig here. So, and it's not necessarily criticism. So Zig's approach- Let's get the gunshots ready. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. No, but it's, where Zig's handling error handling is, um, it's, it's got an error of type built into the language. And you can make a union between the error value or the actual value you want to return. And the language is kind of built around these constructs, as you've seen, like you've got the try um, operator or the uh, defer and such like this, or catch. And it's the idea that you can unwrap a value that was in a union between the error type and a normal value and determine, okay, was this was there an error happened or not? And it, that's kind of how things. So in, in effect, may, please, please don't misunderstand this, Zig's approach is very close to actually exceptions in usage, but it does not suffer from any of the actual issues that normal exceptions from an implementation standpoint, which means actually Zig gets around many of the issues that Mason has brought brought up this this gets worse but yeah. i'll but i'll let you let you talk yes. this out before oh no i, I can think about 100 more you're right there's loads of more issues like there's a, there's a bigger picture on like i'm painting with with this yeah there's there's a lot i i can see and you can it's it's all due to how the nature of them working but well, well the thing the thing that happens is is eventually someone catches an exception if we're just worried about throwing exceptions then the worst thing that can happen is your program can crash and hey you, you probably don't want your program to crash but it can get worse than that so, so say that like, you know, you, you forget to check for like file not found, program crashes on a file not found error, Windows pops up, pops up and says file not found or something. Okay, well, at least the user kind of maybe knows what happened and at least you didn't do anything crazy to their data. Un unfortunately though, right? Like the, the point of exceptions is that you can catch them. And if you can catch exceptions and if you are catching exceptions in your code base, then assuming you're trying to recover from those exceptions, it means that you're assuming your code is in a self-consistent state at the point at which you recover. So this is kind of what Andy was getting at with forward and backwards. In, in Zig, it is very easy to make sure your code is in a self-consistent state after handling an error. Uh, in, in, in Rust, this is, uh, it doesn't have defer built in, but you can do similar things. With exceptions though, if any line of your code can be an exit point to your function, then you need your code to maintain self-consistent state for every single line. 
you need to somehow write your code such that if it was to exit at any line in the function, the code would be self, the state would be self-consistent. Now, that's not going to be possible. So you are going to end up having to stare at things really hard and like figure out like, well, it's okay if it's inconsistent in these lines because I wrap these in a try and then I rethrow later. No one does that. Like I've never seen someone do, I, I, I teach at UCSC and I give this as an exercise to my students when they're learning C++ for the first time. I, I, I give very, very short five line snippets of code and I, and I ask them like, can you write this so that it's exception safe? It is very, very, very hard to write code that when you assume anyone could catch any exception later on, you know, somewhere lower down the call stack, that maintains self-consistent state. So that is why I claim that if you are throwing and also catching exceptions in your program, it is very, very unlikely that you could be certain that it is correct, which is why I find this approach that uh, I'm not as familiar with Odin, but but the approach that I, presumably Odin, Zig, and Rust are all taking, they're, they're, all, they're all different in their own ways, but, but they're all kind of just, I, I believe, augmenting what C does. So I can speak to Rust in particular. Rust provides some types. So you could say this, this function is either going to return the, the value that it was supposed to calculate, or it is going to return an error. And what's great about that is you can't forget to check it. The type system will tell you if you didn't check the result. And in fact, you probably wanted that number or whatever it was out of the function anyway. And you have to check if it's an error or if it's a number before you can even get the number out. You're not going to forget to check for errors. So one point there. Also, it's easy to, main consistent easy to maintain consistent state because you know where all the exit points are. It's just a return. All you have to do is look at where can the function return. That's the only place that the function can exit. You only need to maintain, maintain consistent state at places where it returns. It's nothing too out there, right? This isn't too fancy of a feature. It's just taking what you would do in C and making it friendlier to do in the language. And then you don't have to take on all the problems that exceptions create. Yeah, and I, I think the essence of what you're bringing out here is it's more structured um, constructs in the language. To be very clear, I do not mean like structured exception handling or anything like that. It's just a coincidence using the same term. But I mean like structured as in defer. Like the defer statement in Odin and Zig is, is, is a scope exit thing, and it defers a statement till the end of that scope. It is a very useful thing for having a kind of a closure and a scope on your control flow and combining different things together. For instance, with Zig's error type, you have the er defer. In Odin, you would have defer an if statement. So defer if er doesn't equal nil, then handle it that way. So you'd have a very similar approach going on mm. there. Yeah, um, that, just again, yeah that's very powerful. Yeah. And that's a thing people oh, would very. do in C. They would just do it manually, right? In C, you'd have like int error equals zero. You do a bunch of work. And then if you wanted to fail, you would go go to the error handling part of the code. Yes. You set error to one, go to error handling, do the cleanup there. Whereas in Rust doesn't have defer built into it, but you could very easily make your own defer. I, I have a defer that I used to at my code base. Actually, error defer would be a little trickier. So that's actually pretty cool that Zig has the error defer. I'd have to think a little bit about how I would do that in Rust, though it hasn't been a major problem for me with the kinds of code I've been writing. But like what's happening here, right, is we're taking these things that we all did in C and then yes. we're designing language features that make them easy to do. In C, you would never know to do these things unless you'd been doing C for years or reading other people's C code and the beginner looks at it and they're like, what the heck is going on? Why are there go-tos everywhere? Why is there this error flag? Like, it, it, if you right. make it part of the language, it's very easy to learn. It's very easy to do the right thing instead of very easy to do the wrong thing. And if you were to write C code in some companies, for your day job or something, sometimes, you know, they're going to disallow go to 
no matter how much you cry about it. <laughs> and so that comp makes it even more complicated to have to handle all the possible errors if they ban go to from that. Uh, this sounds like and on top of that, you get no type safety, right? Like if you're using right. integers for your errors, you know, I, I won't name them, but I've worked at uh, a bunch of big tech companies and I, I have seen very serious errors in very important code because people set the error flag thinking it was the error flag from one header file, but then as interpreted as the error flag from another header file because everything's just an int because it's C, Ooh. right? But the second you start, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I found like 30 instances of that in security code. It's uh, if, if, if you have it, <laughs> if you have a feature built into your language for this or just a stronger type system, then, then that's not a problem. So that problem isn't inherent to using return values as errors. It's just inherent to like not having good language support for doing that. So, uh, and to add on oh, to that, yes, you're yes. right. It's Odin is uh, again a way of designing is to have a very strong and distinct type system, and a very f rich feature set of many other things. Um, Odin doesn't have the concept of go to in it, which may seem like why? What, what do you need? You need to do it for certain optimizations. But what I found from what people have programmed in C, there are certain patterns people are trying to do to use go to which can be better replicated with different things. Like, again, defer is a very good example of this. This is a general cleanup of the scope. You don't have to go to the cleanup section and do all right. that. Other things are, for instance, um, again, it's better control flow. It is just better control flow or different stuff that associated thing or nested procedures so you can record different pieces of code. Or many other things like this, like having better features in your language shows you having better structured programming. Technically, all of these at the end of the day will just lower down to jumps. Um, and they'll, they'll be probably the same equivalent as what you do in the C. But because it's more structured, you're going to be less prone to making those typical errors that you wouldn't see. And because you've got a richer, stronger type system, you're not going to make those general uh, implicit conversions. Again, Odin has virtually no implicit conver type conversions whatsoever, which may seem like, oh, do you have to do those casting in Odin? Like, no, very, very little, actually, because of how the language has been designed. And if I were to reduced your reasonable and nuanced arguments to a thumbs up or a thumbs down on exceptions, <laughs> what would you give it? Exceptions will get a <laughs> thumbs down. Andrew, uh, I, I want to um, I want to praise Walter Bright for having the humility to say that exceptions were a giant mistake. I mean, I, I, he built the D language around them and advertised that as the main like one of the main features of it. And then to have the humility to come out and say they were a giant mistake, I, I think that's sincerely laudable. I think that's a really uh, good point. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I'm standing here pointing out all these flaws with exceptions, but, but it's very easy for me to do with, with, you know, years of having worked with them. I totally understand why people thought they were a good idea. And it does take a lot to be able to say, hey, I put myself behind this and I've, and I've changed my mind. I mean, I'm going to give exceptions to thumbs down, obviously. Yeah, um, thumbs down, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but again, to, to talk about um, like D and stuff, for instance, um, without D, I wouldn't have had the concept of like scope exit, which is what defer is. Mm. Now, there is different aspects in D that was just good, defer exit and all the other ones related to how exceptions get thrown as well. But you've got to remember, look, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, effectively, and we are learning from the past mistakes of people in the past, and we're learning the wisdom of people in the past. We're That's not coming cool. out of all of this in out of our heads or rationally. Like we can just imagine what the best one is thing. It's like most things we do not know if it's going to work until we've actually experimented with it, especially when it comes to language design or pro any, any programming project, in fact. I actually and, wrote a blog post on this recently called When to Rewrite, uh, and I'll give you the short yeah. version, don't. 
yeah, it's it's all about incrementally improving things and how trying to plan too far ahead, trying to have like a grand idea and, and build towards it, often by the time you get there, you realize it's not what you wanted. A lot of the good stuff that happens in programming languages or probably anywhere is based on looking at what's been done before, seeing the problems that probably were not obvious uh, when those things were set up and then trying something a little bit different. Yeah. Um, Odin is pretty very conservative in the language. Like Virtually none of the ideas in Odin are new. Many of them come back from the 80s, 70s, or sometimes 90s. And it's because I've, when I've done a lot of research into different languages, you actually see like, oh, there's a hidden gem that's been missed here. And like other languages seem to just forgot about it. But it was extremely useful or it hasn't been forgotten. It's just been only in that subset. Or there's many other features where it's like, okay, I've got a problem. Oh, someone's out solved it. It's usually Rob Pike in the 90s, I've found. Or it's going to be a Niklaus Wirth or something like that. It's going to be someone who's actually solved it. Like, for instance, I found Odin's declaration syntax, which I borrowed from Jonathan Blow, who borrowed it from Sean Barrett. Turns out uh, Rob Pike invented it in the early 90s for his language Newsqueak. It's identical. So things people get reinvented, it's actually, I actually just then researched and found, oh, this is all the issues and problems or the benefits with this approach. And then I was like, okay, when I was trying to design the package system of Odin, I looked back and I looked at Module, I looked at Go, I looked at Python, I looked at many loads of different languages to see how they handle things. And I came to the interesting conclusion after 18, 18 months of research then, yeah, the way that some of these languages do it are pretty good. They just need a minor modification for handling certain things. But it's like, there's not many new ideas in Odin. I can probably name the new ideas on like the number of them on my hand. And it's probably like three fingers. <laughs> There's um, there's one more technical topic I want to discuss before we pop the stack and go back to the com conversation around community building and communication. But there's one more technical topic. This interests me very much because for years I've been thinking about um, you know assembly and its role for programmers to manually interact with assembly. Like how necessary is that still for low level programmers? I still think it's necessary personally, but I'll get your thoughts. So you know Microsoft famously dropped inline assembly from their MSVC compiler. And I'm not exactly sure the reason for that. Uh, maybe somebody on the chat on the conference can tell us, but I heard rumors that this was done to simplify their code optimizer. And that's interesting to me because ASM still feels very important, especially if you're deep in the weeds you know, of a kernel or you're touching all those system calls, addressing all those syscalls. So what is, uh, what is your take on inline assembly and just you know, your language interfacing with ASM in general? Yeah, so when I first started doing Zig six years ago, I didn't, I was a lot less experienced with assembly. I had never done a programming language with inline assembly before. So I took the safe approach of doing literally the same syntax as Clang and GCC, you know, as a first iteration on the design. And we're still on that design iteration today, and it's okay. But by this time, I've now gotten a lot more experience. I've worked on the native self-hosted code backend for Zig, you know, emitting x86-64. I've interacted with a bunch of people using Zig to write operating systems. And so I feel that now I've collected enough information that it, we're, we're due. I'm, I'm rubbing my hands together. We're due for a uh, second design iteration on inline assembly. And I'm going to do some ambitious stuff. So you know, we might need a design iteration number three, but I definitely think design iteration number two is going to be really interesting and ambitious. So you definitely consider assembly to be a core part of, you know, a low-level programmer's toolkit. And oh, absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so Rust supports it. Uh, I haven't done it very much. I'm trying to remember when I, I I did write a few toy calculators after the one I wrote with Andy 
and I'm trying to remember whether I used inline assembly or whether I actually stuffed the uh, x64 into a buffer and then just marked it as executable. I think it was the latter, but I think I have done both in experiments. My actual engine and actual langu language uh, don't currently have any inline assembly in them. That being said, uh, I would definitely feel limited if I didn't have at least the option to, to do that. It, it does seem like you're closing a lot of doors if you don't at least provide the option. You know, now that I recall, I think sometime last year, there was like a blog post from Rust saying that there was like a new inline assembly syntax available in their nightly. It, it's got to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is, it is there. there. You can do it. Yeah, I was saying the, the way that Rust does it, if I remember correctly, it is still using like the GCC style of an opaque string. It's, it's, it's a Rust has the, the ASM macro. Just got yeah. exclamation mark in there, and you have the opaque string for all the different things, and then you can use other because when you write write Rust macros, you can write your own effectively domain specific language in there. It's absolute banana cakes about what you can do with macros in Rust. And in my opinion, that's just like that's crazy. You shouldn't be doing that. But it allows you to do all this, and it can annotate all of the clobbing registers and such. And the if you've got um, explicit register operands or um, in late out parameters, if I remember correctly. So there's all these different things that goes on in Rust. Now, for Odin, I've recently just started writing the inline assembler for Odin. So really, I am already thinking, like, okay, I need an assembly. And I've been planning it for a while. I already know the kind of style that I want. And I'm just practically doing something that other, other languages have done before. And then tweaking that to make that work with Odin semantics. So the general idea is, like, when you had MSVC before 64-bit compiler removed it, inline assembly was effectively embedded in the language. It wasn't an opaque string. It was just normal identifiers. And the assembly understood the parent's language. So you could pass the identifiers from variables. And depending on where the positioning are, the different clobber parameters were different. Always it'd be a value, always it'd be a point, I'd use your load or whatever. So it would understand those semantics. And if you need anything special about that, other languages, not uh, other compilers, would actually have annotations a way of doing that. So that's kind of the approach I want from Odin, and that's what I'm writing now with the inline assembly. And then once I've done that, I'm going to have to translate, because I'm using LLVM as a background. It's going to be the inline assembly is going to have to convert to LLVM's assembly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is such Which a is silly... Fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's mate. a silly bypass. But the thing <laughs> is, um, but that doesn't matter. I'm not designing around LLVM my language. Odin, you could have any other backend. So I'm designing, this is Odin. Here's the interface, effectively, if, if you've got the compiler, whatever, and then you use the backend. But the default backend at the moment is just LLVM. That's kind of the idea. I don't want to be designed, restricted by what LLVM does. I just want to have a generic assembly language. And that's a good point I've just noted, a generic assembly language. Something that Ken Thompson figured out back in the day is that all assembly languages are pretty much identical. Like, it doesn't matter if you were programming for the Apollo 11 computer or if you're for a sparks machine or an arm machine or an x86 or whatever architecture is assembly languages all look about the same they've all got the same kind of feature they've got the function initialization maybe some of the operands like you push and pop you've got all of the different um, instructions you've got an argument and then the operands for the uh, for the instruction and you can actually map this out now and again this is something i know from when ken thompson was working on like plan, plan 9 compiler this is what they did it was a generic assembly language, which you could just pop, pop, in, pop in the instructions for whatever architecture you're all working on. So it already works out. You don't have to use AT&T style or Intel style and then have to have a completely different style depending on what architecture you're on. You can have a generic one that'll work for every single one and you can map to directly. And it works out. If there are caveats, you can put those caveats in. But in general, it will map fine. Because at the end of the day, is there any one way to like make machine code? 
<laughs> and most of them are pretty um, very similar to each other. It's amazing Regardless to me how uh, the sorry. It's amazing to me how the AT and T format for assembly and the Intel they swap their operand order depending on which format you chose, yes. which is extremely confusing. When I went through that, because I was uh, I, if I ever write assembly, it's through the AT and T format, which is I think is the default for GCC and stuff. I'm not sure. I think so. Yes. Uh, yeah, and then, but when you read the Intel documentation, well, of course they're going to use the Intel format, and so that was quite the fun experience figuring out that they they intentionally confuse the user. Caveat: It does confuse the user, and there's different conventions, and clearly there's multiple rooms. So if you can unify it in your my my Odin's assembly language itself, then it gets awesome. around those flaws because you don't have to worry about different dialects. You've only got one dialect per architecture, and that's the idea that I've got. So you just generate a table for all the stuff you need to do, and then. Maybe a bit more of that because you can't do a jet table for x86. Good God, is that awful assembly. Uh, assembly. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> but it's kind of noticing that that's the case. Like, for instance, one issue with, like, if going back a bit step, LLVM doesn't really properly support Intel. Uh, well, it prefers AT&T. There are issues with the Intel uh, assembly language. I know with um, Clang and LLVM. Mm -hmm. So they still say try and prefer AT&T if you do. So yeah, I had, some, I had the same yeah. uh, same problem. I tried to make Intel the only way to do syntax in ZIG, and I just ran into bugs in LLVM, so I had to yeah. sadly go back to AT&T. I actually prefer AT&T, which is going to annoy a lot of people, but eh, that's what I got used to. So oh, that's the chat why I is going to explode. What are you doing I know, to me, I, I know. Why do you not like it? Do you, not, do you like that monster? I'm like, hey, it's fine. I've had worse before. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so is Zig going for something similar as Odin trying to maybe streamline the you know the assembly experience for users or Yeah, yeah. And so to be clear earlier when I said that's so silly, I wasn't actually I wasn't critiquing Odin. I was saying, yeah, it's silly because we're about to do the exact same thing where we have our own ah. assembly parser and then on native backends we just assemble into machine code, but on the LLVM backend it's even less convenient because we can't just assemble into machine code. We have to assemble into LLVM flavored AT&T syntax or, or whatever flavored uh, other architecture syntax. Oh, that's curious. It says uh, in, in the book here that Rust is using the syntax roughly matches that of GCC and Clang. And so what, what I'm concluding there, though I'm not necessarily 100% sure, I'm concluding that they are actually doing a similar thing. If they're saying it roughly matches that of GCC and Clang, then I'm guessing they also have their own format that then gets converted into what LLVM wants, that then gets converted into what you're actually trying to generate. <laughs> uh, but I haven't like read the source, and I, uh, and I haven't used it very much. Uh, one thing you said earlier, Mason, just reminded me anyway, was when you were saying about how you sometimes just literally get the right machine code and then, say, write the protections on there and just so you can execute it manually. I've had to do that in Python before numerous times. And again, Python is not known for knowing doing low-level assembly work, but I've had no. to ex execute machine code just to get round some features or get some features which need to exist in there. So I didn't have to rely on binding to a C library and calling that all that way. Um, so that was fun, but it wasn't, it's just, it, you have to do it sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. for me, it, I wasn't doing it because of any like uh, deficit in like what Rust provides. It's because it was ultimately my end goal. So I, I have a scripting language I wrote in Rust that currently generates a bytecode. And for any viewers who aren't, familiar with the term, it's essentially like a made-up assembly language that an interpreter executes. And I kind of got it in my head, like, why am I outputting this made-up language and then interpreting it? I could just output x64 directly. And then the most efficient way to do that would be to just stick it in a buffer and execute that buffer, right? Just put it all in one, all in one place. 
I definitely did that at some point, and I just I can't I just can't remember whether I also did it with inline assembly. You know what? I think I did do both. I think what I did was I like used inline assembly to like call this buffer that I filled with bytes that were structured to be x64 code. I love how we've exhaustively gone through certain technical topics. At the beginning, though, you said that there was a core aspect of contributors and community building and communication that sometimes it's even more important than having like an exhaustive knowledge of technical topics. So I love that. Let's talk about community building and, and languages. You know, creating a new language isn't just about having a technically sound compiler. And I always think back to, you know, we talked about Jonathan Blow, we mentioned him recently, you know, he's working on the JAI compiler. I've personally noticed some kind of, and not, this is not necessarily an attack on, on John, I'm just observing what's going on with the language and the community. I've noticed that there's a bit of increasing isolation. The language has been a closed source for a long time. A closed beta did happen, and but it's been growing very slowly. John used to do a lot of very open streams about the language, and now these days it's kind of, you know, uh, on his streams it's like subscriber only, more close, so more more closed, more feels almost like more gatekeeping. And I'm not trying to attack John. I'm just trying to comment on how the language is being developed. So first, I want to kind of clarify John's position here. So for John, I think he comes from a, a certain school of thought where um, he's, he, in, there's two different general schools, I think. I can't remember if it's Berkeley and MIT. Or I don't remember which one it is which. But one of them is like you start working on it all in secret, and then you at the end when it's done, you go, hey, ta-da, here's the final product. The other school of thought is very much like, okay, we're just going to show our work as we're going along and let people see what we're working on. And it's like I've evolved. And then when it's done, we'll be like, yep, it's done. Thank you for helping to view it. So they do have different benefits to those approaches. Most games are developed the oh, work inside and then ta-da, here it is. But many open source projects by default are there. Now, I can understand a lot of the issues with John not wanting to deal with the community aspect. Because when you have an open source project, as again, I know and um, Andy knows very well, is that once it's open, you're not open to the public. You're open to criticism, open to questions, open to dealing with the community at hand. And if someone is like John, he may not have the time to actually deal with all that such, doesn't may want to deal with that stuff, let alone have the time, and rather have it in a, in a more closed, private environment where he selects who is got access to it. This is not necessarily a bad thing, nor a good thing. It is highly dependent on the on what you're doing and what's the topic. Now, I will say for Odin, um, I was pretty much uh, opened it up pretty much after about a month or two after I started. And I, I'm very glad I had open stuff because I had people who were testing it, show me ideas. I could bounce ideas off people in public. They could show me flaws or other ideas, and it was very useful to have that conversation. I still was effectively the benevolent dictator who was going like, okay, here's the decisions I want. Here's the idea, the main idea that I am trying to possess and, 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 and cultivate within the language. But... And that doesn't mean I wasn't open to criticism. Oh, good God, I was I open to criticism for many different things. There's a lot of things that I would have not thought of done, like certain ideas. Like, for instance, when I've been working on Embergen, it's a team of eight people. Sometimes people go, hey, why didn't we just have this feature? And it's like, I never thought about that, but that solves a bunch of other problems. Like one of the good examples of that was um, the deferred attributes. So this is uh, means you can attach a procedure to another procedure, and that procedure will get defer called and deferred at when that things get caught. So it's kind of a little shorthand. It's like similar to GNU C's cleanup or something like that. But the, the thing where that's different here 
is you have different ways and different types. You can either pass in the same parameters that the original one got called, or the outputs, or both the input and outputs, or none of it. So there's kind of uh, the four different variants you could have. Now, this is very useful, and the places where it became useful were profiling and UI code. This is where it solved that particular problem. So with profiling, in C, you would normally have a macro, so you could have something so you could act, act, like uh, initialize it and then defer the, the end scope. But with this in Odin, with it, it just popped in and worked well. The other one for, um, for UI work is a lot, for instance, you will have uh, begin and ends a lot, like begin a section, end a section, or begin a tree, end a tree. Or if it's even conditional, like if, and, um, if this is open, then defer the close inside the block. Well, with this construct, it actually reduced that, made things a lot more simpler, and actually it got rid of many of many people's needs for macros. So again, I would, again, without actually seeing real world use cases like this, it was um, like, wow, this is not, this would have been like, I couldn't have thought about it on my own. And I'm glad I got the input from other people using the language and helping me solve problems that I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that was the solution. Yeah, I think, you know, Ginger Bill, I think it's interesting how you pointed out that John might not have time to open up the project to make it open source, you know, and involve other people. I see it for myself, the complete opposite I don't have enough time to not have it be open source because I, I, I am no matter how much time I put in, I have 24 hours in a day and one third of that needs to be sleep. And I have, you know, a life that's not just sitting in front of a screen all day, no matter how smart I am, no matter how talented I am, no matter how much effort I put into it, I'm one person and I don't, I don't have the perspective to solve all the use cases. You, you know, we each have the the projects that we've worked on. You know, I did a, I did I bounced around between a lot of different interests. You know, like audio stuff. I did a bunch, I did a little bit of hobbyist game development, but I didn't go nearly as specialized into game development that John or even Mason is doing. So we all have different perspectives to bring to the table. And when you make a programming language, in some sense, it is general purpose in the sense that it's not just for you; it's for other people. And so if you want it to be effective at being a, a useful language in general, you have to involve other people besides yourself who bring perspectives that you don't have to the table. Yeah, so but that's again, actually... Can I that there? I was saying you still have to manage it, though. Like, for instance, and that's the issue. With someone like John, and this, I have to put it this, he is pretty famous. And because of that, he's going to get a lot of attention and a lot of people trying to help, and he's going to get all of that management in the community. When we both started our projects, there were very small people and it's organically grown and got bigger and bigger. And we've able to deal with that. And again, I know this is going to be someone like John, he'll just get a massive influx at once and it will be overwhelm him. And he knows that would be the case. So I completely understand where he's coming from. So it's not like it's going to be a small organic growth and he can help more people to get the team. It's just going to be whoosh, big traffic jam at once. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's fair. I can think of a few ways to solve that problem though, you know. Like that, oh, that, yeah, just, that directly translates to money. Um, yeah, I'm just doing um, counterpoints and such like this. I'm just trying to say, yes, there's this thing, there's, there's this little thing. And what have you thought about this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, carry on, Mason. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can totally empathize with, with the, uh, the very reasonable fear of that happening. Um, but so, so I think I have an interesting perspective because, you know, I'm working with Rust every day and it's developed very much in the open uh, and I'm using it in part to work on my little scripting language, which is very much developed privately. I, I do have a lot of, you know, friends who work on stuff in Rust who ask me, oh, can I use your scripting language? And, and the answer is like, well, maybe someday. For me, 
this works really well because the scripting language is designed solely for me. It is a tool that I have built for myself to do things that I want to do efficiently. And so I don't need to actually keep in mind anyone else's use cases. And so I think that uh, I, I don't want to sound too certain of this, right? Because criticizing someone who isn't there to defend themselves is, you know, I risk arguing with a straw man. Uh, but I think my concern would be, even though there may be good reasons to, you know, to make the decision, right? That even though it is very, I, I can totally imagine that, you know, uh, being a public figure is not easy. Uh, and I am sure that getting overwhelmed with a million people who have opinions on your thing all at once trying to contribute code or file issues and stuff is probably, that's probably a hard thing to handle. But regardless of the motivations that led to the current state of things, as a person using programming languages, I, I do find it hard to believe that a programming language developed in a little bit of a silo is going to meet all of my needs. Just like I, I do not expect my little scripting language to be used, you know, a lot of people hear me talking about the cool things it does for me and they want to try it, but I, I'm actually very skeptical that it would be as useful for them as they think because I, I'm the only one who looks at it ever. And, you know, maybe someday I could open it up and transition it into something that's useful for very many people. Uh, but if I was just to send the source code to someone right now, I actually do not know that it would serve them much utility. And now, obviously, uh, Johnny is not siloed to the extent that my project is, you know, there is a closed beta. He does talk about it with other people. I'm not claiming it's the same level of extreme, uh, but but it definitely is like a concern for me. Like I, I would, uh, I, I do question like, how are you gonna handle everyone's use cases when a small number of people are there? And maybe the answer is you're not, right? That's okay. Like if that's the, if the goal isn't to uh, be useful to everyone, then then cool. Just like my goal with my scripting language isn't be, to be useful to everyone, but I'm not sure exactly what uh, what his goal is. Was Rust open source very early on? Um, I, I think it was probably private, if I was going to bet, to begin with, and then it became open source. Um, a good example, another language like that would be like Go, where Go was made in Google, it's probably kind of closed source, a small team of people, probably I think like four people working on it initially. And then they opened its source. But again, Go was very highly designed for what people at Google want. They needed to Google. So again, it's, it is not necessarily silo, but it's like they've got people who've got it, they're very big language designers anyway, they know what they're doing. So it's kind of, they know exactly what needs they had, so they had to know exactly what they're designing. It wasn't really like they're inventing a new idea or a new thing and experimenting. It's pretty much, yeah, we know what we're doing and know what we want. To have a minor caveat, which may sound like a tangent, but it isn't, open source software is weird. And I make a distinction between open source, just a free open source, which I just mean open source in general. Many open source projects are of low quality as well. Like, because many people, this is the thing with the open source, oh, I'll make something and then I'll just post it onto the internet. Like, oh, great, there you go. Here's my incomplete thing. And the reason why there is usually going to be a low quality because there's very, there's not much, um, there's not much in there to make the person do that. There's no, no incentive to do that. While something like a closed source project, you may not know what the source code looks like, but the, because it's closed, they're usually probably going to sell it. Usually, not always. Um, so the quality of the output is probably going to be have to hire because there's an incentive to make sure it's good for their customers. Now, there are exceptions to that. There's many exceptions to open source projects like that, of course. But they are the exceptions. And if you are dealing with an open source people and many people contribute code, you've then got to actually worry about what is the quality of the code that they're contributing. Now, sometimes it's absolutely brilliant and I've seen really good stuff. And sometimes it's really it's awful. And then sometimes you get the people who just program in there because they just want to get like, oh, I, I contributed to this project kind of people. It's a very difficult thing to manage. And and again, it's any any open source project will face this problem. 
I know I have, I guess Zig probably has, I know Rust has for definite. But when you have loads of strangers, um, you can't always know the quality of their work. And it's very hard to know just from even just reading one, like say a pull request on GitHub, something like that, um, if it's of, of good quality for what you would want to merge into your project. Now, the list, uh, Linux is a very good example of something like this, where it's kind of a mostly high quality code base, but, and it's open source. Um, but the, the way the stru- Linux is structured is very hierarchical. You've got uh, Linus Torvalds at the top. He's got many people below him he trusts, and then they've got the people below him, and da 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 So when things get merged, they go through this um, hierarchy of trust, effectively. Is that how the hierarchy is for, for Zig and for Odin? For Zig, it's definitely me at the top, just with uh, the direction of the code. Um, and then there's definitely core Zig team members who have the ability to merge pull requests and you know make some decisions. That's about it. But um, it's less hierarchical in the sense that it doesn't go through multiple layers, but it's mm. more just based on what people have time for or what their interests are. You know, people specialize in different areas of the code, that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah, so similar to Odin as well. Like, I am the benevolent dictator for life uh, at the top. Then there's many people who are working as well in Asia Tone, but I don't usually, I'm more of like, hey, here's the general design goal. Please work, help it. Some people work, I've got, I've got one person working, absolutely brilliant. He's been working a lot of the core library stuff. Um, he's implemented a fully spec compliant PNG package and i mean it's literally fully spec better than some stuff even on web browsers he's um, done the big integer library as well which is pretty good and all he's working on full-on opening xr and such he's and again it's one of the things like other people working on such like that and i know the quality i'm like oh wow that's brilliant and i'm just gonna let you do what you need to do because you know what you're doing and i'm not really telling them these people what to do but sometimes i am like yeah could you Okay, I've got some criticism here, but that's just general criticism as you talk to anyone person on your team. So it's not necessarily I'm above them. It's more of a, like, I'm just on the team with you. Yeah, as an as an example, um, Jakub is our uh, full-time uh, developer for Zig Software Foundation. He's been doing linker work. So we actually have, I think, maybe the only linker that works for uh, M1, the new Mac OS ARM computers, cross-platform. So, I mean, this is this is groundbreaking work right this this code doesn't exist in other projects yet and if i were to want to change some linker code i would try to i would get it approved from him i wouldn't just go tinkering around with all that stuff because he's the one who invested the time and the energy to understand it and i mean as far as i'm concerned i need to get my stuff approved by him if i'm if i'm doing linker work uh, all i was saying is i had someone else who's working on uh, worked on the odin language server that many people love and i've had literally no input into it whatsoever and someone else just working on it, and it's been working wonderfully. And he's just he's done an outstanding job for many people, and he's helped many people. It's just something like I've not even told him what he needs to do. He just he's just done it, and I'm glad because <laughs> it's something I'm like I don't even like language servers whatsoever. But because um, I'm just a very old bloke who just likes okay, I just want to just play work in my text editor, and I just need a text editor. That's all I need. So let's uh, this is perfect. We're about to wrap up the the podcast here, so let's discuss the final topic. I want to talk about helping people the community the younger generation whoever in general how to help them demystify the process of how computers are built and the reason the motivation for this at least for me and this is what i try to do at this conference too trying to make low-level programming and low-level understanding and and getting deep into the weeds of how things work the reason i love promoting that and advocating for that is because 
I see a lot of debates um, in many online communities, at universities, at work, anywhere, all the time, debates all the time about the best way to program a piece of software. And unfortunately, at least in my opinion, it tends to usually fall into a few camps and it never budges away from those camps, right? So it, it stays on object-oriented programming as one method, as a holy grail to program. I hear that. There are many advocates for object-oriented programming. There's the... And the game industry there talks about, you know, entity component systems, ECS. And this is like the holy grail for organizing a lot of your software these days, um, your games. And then there's a classic functional programming approach. There are many diehards for functional programming that think this is the way to build a piece of software. And I've always th felt like it, it feels so almost even like religious in, in, in the overtones of that debate. And I've always wondered, like, what if we could make it a cool thing <laughs> to build an 8-bit breadboard CPU? If you in university, if you make building CPUs, in fact, if you tell people you can build a CPU, you can, you can make it happen. Um, you can make it cool to know how uh, the assembly that you design can translate down to that, you know, 8-bit machine code or make it cool to know how C translates down to x64. I see many universities in their classes, like there's an architecture class in your college. They might say, oh, you know, you just got to get a passing grade here. You, and then you just have to deal with Java. So you don't have to really spend time learning how computers work or how they're built. And I've always felt like if you do make it a cool thing, though, to know about those you know, deep in the trenches stuff, then a lot of the higher level debates of what to do to build software, I feel like they get resolved if you make it interesting for people to dive deeper. Um, maybe you guys disagree or agree, but I'd love to finish up the topic and the podcast with that. Who wants to jump in? I had one quick concrete answer to the question uh if anyone is interested in this topic and they have not done the nand to tetris book that would be my my one suggestion so this is a this is a book that will take you from you you have a nand gate so two wires come in and one wire comes out and it's the nand operation and this book takes you from this component and it builds on it builds on it builds on it and at the end of the book you have a, a working tetris game running on only nand circuits uh, N-A-N-D, the number two, and then Tetris, T-E-T-R-I-S. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'll ask the moderators in the chat to post that link up there. Thank you. I got another link for you. Uh, if you're interested in compilers and it feels like magic to you and you don't know where to start, check out craftinginterpreters.com by uh, Robert Nystrom. Uh, you can buy the book. There's also a, It's also freely available on his website. It's a good resource. So, so this is something I think a lot about. I've given talks a few times about game engines or compilers, and where the whole the sole purpose of the talk is to convince at least a few people in the audience that if they wanted to, they could go write in a, a compiler or a game engine. You know, it, it's really great. For example, in the uh, game space, that we have these general purpose game engines that let a lot more people make games. You don't have to care about graphics APIs to make a game anymore, and that's a good thing because a lot of games that wouldn't have gotten made now get made. At the same time, though, uh, those general purpose engines do need people to maintain them. Unity is going to need to hire people. Unreal is going to need to hire people. And like, wouldn't you rather there be more options besides the two very big companies that basically own the engines behind every single indie game? I, I yeah, I, I have multiple times given given talks just trying to convince people this is a thing you can do. The hard problems get easy when you break them into small pieces, uh, and you don't owe the world pragmatism. You're allowed to do things because they're fun. So yes, if you're trying to build Tetris, going through NAND to Tetris is not the fastest way to build Tetris. If you're trying to make an indie game, 
Uh, building your own engine is probably not the fastest way to get it done, at least if you haven't written an engine before. If you're trying to learn to write, you know, a website so you can get employed to write some JavaScript or whatever, right? Like learning how to build your own CPU may not be the fastest way to get there. But if you find those things interesting, right? If, if, if you're hearing Abner say you can make your own CPU and you're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> I could do that? Really? Like, that's cool. But are you sure? Like, do it. Why not? Right? Like, if you have some, if you have the time to do why not? Like, why not do something that's fun? And, and you know, the truth is most, most plans don't pan out anyway, right? Like, if you're sitting here planning the most efficient way to get something done, chances are it's not really going to work. So if you have the time to spend on doing things for fun, chances are some of those fun things are going to pan out for you anyway. So I definitely encourage people to try to learn how things work. I, I'm not sure what the solution is to making it cool. I, I do teach at a uh, university. I teach grad and undergrad. And I definitely recognize that it's a problem. Uh, I see a lot of students who kind of get paralyzed by this fear of writing bad code. They're worried that their code isn't object-oriented enough, which I almost find funny because I, I, I'm very much not a fan of object-oriented programming, but they've had other professors or other people or some rando on Reddit tell them, you know, well, your code's bad because it's not object-oriented enough. And then they're afraid to finish the assignment they're working on because they're afraid it won't be object-oriented enough or, or, or whatever it may be. I'm sure there's someone out there who has picked a different paradigm and, you know, is worried they're not doing that well enough. When at the end of the day, the important thing is you build something and it works. So I'm definitely fighting the smaller battle of like with the students that I teach, really drilling into them like that the important thing is that your software does what it's supposed to do when it runs on the user's computer. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And everything else is just a heuristic to get you there. So like, I'm not saying you should write messy code with bad variable names, but the reason you shouldn't do that isn't because of the aesthetic of the code. It's because that's going to make it harder for you to write correct code that does the right thing for the user. But the reason you care about that is because of the user's experience. But that's like an idea that I would like to spread further. And, I, and it took me too many words to say it. It's not catchy. So I don't know. Maybe we need a way to make that idea catchier. Yeah, so that's so funny that you said that because if you go to the Zig language reference and you scroll to the bottom where we have the Zen principles, the very last bullet point says, together we serve the users. It's definitely catchier than what I just said. <laughs> I I'm probably that... going to take the opposite opinion. I don't think you need to be catchy. I think this is where I, I don't, if people are going to be interested in this field, they're going to be interested in the field. And I think mm. trying to make it cool and all this stuff is probably the wrong feature. Like, for instance, mm. going back to the original thing that um, Abner brought up here was effectively like people trying to find the silver bullet. Yeah. And remembering, like, as Fred Brooks says, there is no silver bullet. And again, this is one thing I've noticed when a lot of programs are struggling in programs to solve a problem, especially novices is that they, they're stuck so worrying about the best way to implement the solution rather than actually understanding the problem that he has. And, and I believe a lot of this stems from not understanding the essence of what programming fundament, fundamentally is. Like programming is a tool to solve your problems that you have in the domain of computers. Th that's it. So the, at the essence of everything in programming, it is using and building tools with computers. And again, my honest belief is that, that the studying of the concept of a tool itself and its essentially ordered aspects will aid the user in correctly structuring his thinking and how he will build his tools in general. And I think this is one thing where we need to kind of like teach beginners is actually understand the purpose of what you're doing, the function of how it's going to work, like how you're meant to use it and less about the implementation. You know, I think that the strategy that I have is, a, is to run these conferences and make sure that Ginger Bill's super cool accent is with us at all times. <laughs> and that's, that's well, enough. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
to get people interested. I don't know. Maybe maybe I disagree with you, Ginger, uh, to some degree. I think that people are, not everybody, but you know, plenty of people are shaped by the institutions around them and the institutions that they are a part of. Oh, so 100% if, agree, yeah. Yeah, if they are in a college whose classes actively tell you that these things you know, at the lower level are not practical anymore, then there's not going to focus on it as much. Whereas if you have, you know, this conference or, you know, leaders and uh, more universities like bring some interest into this again, doesn't necessarily have to be a cool thing. You're right. It could just be mandatory, <laughs> but, but I'd rather I'd rather it's made interesting and entertaining. And then it could shape the way people value these things. And maybe you're right that the people who have a natural affinity towards low-level programming will naturally find and gravitate towards these things. But I think there's there's also something we can do in the outer edges, if that makes sense. I think there's another piece to it, which is certain people are going to feel demotivated more easily than others based on how like society treats them, right? So, and you really don't want that, right? Like you don't want to be a part of that problem. And so right. my, my goal when I give these talks isn't for everyone to come out of it thinking they need to go make their own game engine and they shouldn't use Unity ever. I just want everyone to know that they could if they wanted to. So when I'm talking about making it cool, I'm not saying make it uncool to use Unity or make it uncool to not build your own CPU. But it's more, I want people to know that these are, they, aren't, they are the kind of person that could do this kind of work. It's, there's not some intrinsic thing about other people that lets them do this work and this person could never do this work. I want everyone to know that they could do this stuff. And I, want, I think that if you're a programmer, you might want to dip your toes in at least a little bit. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to do the antitestures if you don't want to, but, but glance over it, you know, like look into the stuff a little bit and, and then, you know, on a, like a bigger picture, like wouldn't it be better if, if regardless of what level of abstraction you're working at, if, if all programmers, so, you know, if we could all get on board with this idea that we are serving the end user, that it's not about the aesthetic of the code itself. Like there is, uh, there is this shift there. I, I would like, I would like to find a way to make that idea more attractive, to spread that idea. And and like I get that, like it's easy for me at least as like a person like I, I you know I think of myself as like technically minded. It's easy for me to think like oh I all I need to do is make a good argument, and like that works if I'm talking to a single person. But the truth is is that uh, you know as much as I I, I dislike object oriented programming, for example, right. The idea spreads, and it spreads way faster than I could ever go and talk to everyone. So, so having a way to talk about my takes on how to program well, which, which at the end of the day are basically just focus on the problem at hand, having having a way to to represent that idea that like is catchy is maybe the only way that that idea would ever spread. I think a lot of ideas spread because they seem like a good idea. And this is the same with many things. And it's it's one thing that we need to remember. And I've, I've said I've said this before, probably in the last but the, the programming language uh, is the programming language, not programming language. Programming in general is a very young field. There hasn't been enough. It's not old enough to have a selection pressure to say which is actually the good ideas and through just just general evolutionary principles. But even then, it's like look, understanding that means that most people don't know what the best way is, if there is even such thing, which I don't believe there is. Uh, there's not uni unqualified universal best way. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it's more that, look, the best practices, many of them haven't been discovered yet. So when people saying this is the best practice, I'd be highly skeptical about what they're saying. Like, extremely, extremely. So that's, and so that's again, there's thing. not one way of doing things that is the best. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's a really good thing. And I think that the challenge that I see a lot of my students face, and that I definitely faced as a younger programmer, was uh, was feeling like I wasn't allowed to be critical of the quote unquote best ways that I was taught. So I don't have a paradigm that I'm trying to convince everyone of. 
But what I do want everyone to understand is that uh, when you when you look at a piece of code and you make a quick decision where you're like, well, this doesn't align with the paradigm I'm currently using, or that functions too many lines, or whatever it is, I, I want people to understand that you know you're using a heuristic, and that's okay. You can't think super deeply and critically about every single decision you make. You never get anything done. But uh, if we can all accept that these quote unquote best practices are just these heuristics that, you know, maybe they work for some people, maybe they don't work for others, and you're welcome to try them out. And if they stop working for you, you can stop using them. That is a huge, huge step forward. A lot of the people that, I, that I'm teaching are, are, have a lot of trouble accepting that. They have a lot of trouble letting go of evaluating their code against a set of principles instead of evaluating their code against what the code actually ends up doing. But that's kind of that is rational. That is rational to do it. I, I remember as when I was learning to program, I didn't know what I was doing, so I was looking to others for wisdom. Look like, okay, this person seems virtuous. He knows what he's talking about, so I'll listen to him and follow him, even if it doesn't make sense what I'm doing. Like he probably knows what he's doing. He's been doing it longer than me, and that's what loads of people do. You're trying to find a shortcut to wisdom, but it's be and this is the thing is that there isn't one yet. It's not like engineering, which has been going on for thousands of years. Um, and then we can just pretty much do that. And we know what the best way of doing certain things are. Is we can't do that yet. And unfortunately, this is this is unfortunate. We've just kind of have to slowly figure it out for ourselves and learn how to problem solve, and then learn about the solutions to those certain problems. Absolutely we agree. I, I don't think I'm going to give a student a catchy idea and then they're going to become a master programmer overnight. But I have seen students affected by talking to me about this. I've seen students who oh, yeah. are struggling to get stuff done, and then they talk to me, and I and I help them work through this idea that they need to evaluate what they're doing against kind of these abstract principles. And then they start making progress and they start learning really fast once they get unstuck. So my goal is to get people unstuck on their journey of becoming better programmers. I'm not, they need to do that work themselves. I can't do it for them, but I can uh, help not just that to understand that everyone gets stuck. I get stuck all the time when I'm programming. Absolutely. And, usually, and it's like, this is normal. This is, this is engineering effectively. You do it. And if you do it correctly, like this is problem solving and it's a difficult thing and beginners shouldn't be afraid of that they shouldn't be afraid to experiment if you don't know how how to do something experiment that's the first thing you should try and do try and figure out how it might work and if you don't know ask for help ask for people you think you trust know from knowledge and then get another opinion as well and see how another person does it yeah because you'll start seeing different patterns but the point is that they shouldn't um just cargo cult the advice that they get from you know, yes. quote unquote, expert programmers, they should understand the advice before doing it, or or maybe try to do something that actually does make sense to them. I, I wish that it was the case that we could just look at a prescribed dogma and go like, okay, this is evolved and it's it's tested the standard uh, like it's ten of the time, but we haven't got that yet. It is at this point where many people do have to just honestly reason and think about this art. And it's, it is difficult. I completely agree. And this is why it takes years to master the profession and actually understand the things. So it, it's a sad state of affairs, but it is the state of affairs. And do not let that put off. Just that means that you can learn and you're learning like everybody else. You learn to experiment, learn to feel like, yes, everyone else is in the same boat as you. And it's, again, remember, there is no best way. Do you have something else to add, Andrew, before I go grab chocolate wine and abandon you guys? I just want to conclude that I do have an idea to make uh, low-level programming cool, Ooh. and it is to put googly eyes on the textbooks. That is I can brilliant. get behind that. Oh, my God. All right. Now when I start Google doing streams, I'm going to have googly books with googly <laughs> eyes on the back all the time. Oh, yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> 
Um, Andrew Kelly of Zig, Ginger Bill of Odin, Mason, I want you to mention your game again so people can once again find it. So uh, I, my game is Way of Rhea. It's a puzzle platformer for people who like puzzle platformers but want more puzzling and less platforming. It's spelled Way, as in the word Way, of Rhea, R-H-E-A, and you can find a free demo on Steam. And Andrew, if somebody wants to find you or join the community of Zig, what do they do? Ziglang.org. Oh, and that's it. <laughs> I love it. Straight into the point. What about Ginger? Again, uh, odinlang.org is one way to find us. And um, if you want to join part of the community, join the GitHub or join the Discord as well. There's a very active on the Discord. Many people are. And you can always find someone to talk to if you've got questions. Yes, excellent. Well, thank you for joining this podcast. And I really do hope to talk to you again. Thank you. Oh. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Handmade Network podcast. There's plenty more to check out from Handmade Seattle 2021 by going to media.handmade-seattle.com. I personally love having a conference giving handmade software a home, and if you do too, you should consider supporting Abner in his efforts and giving him a huge thanks. Hope you enjoyed the show and hope to see you next time.